Well, open with me in your Bibles to the book of James chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Well, Richard is spending an inappropriate amount of time with his assistant. And so you say to Richard, hey, Richard, I think you shouldn't be doing private dinner meetings with your assistant because, well, you have a wife and kids. To which Richard replies, who are you to judge your neighbor? That quote is right out of the book of James, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Our passage this morning is also the title for the sermon. When it comes to verses like this, we can tend to be satisfied to know what they don't mean. And we can be concerned to make sure that the Bible is not misused like this. Surely James does not mean that we cannot make moral judgments or speak to others concerning their lives. James does it a billion times in his letter. I actually thought, I'm going to count. I'm going to start from the beginning and work my way through. And I just gave up. James does a lot of this. And he actually commends us to do the same. At the end of the book, he lands with this line, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. So we know what James doesn't mean by this question. But what does James mean? Do we know that? Are we concerned about that? God calls us to much more than knowing what the Bible doesn't say in this or that instance. And so lest we dishonor the Holy Spirit who gave us scripture, we must not stop short of hearing James's question as a real question, as a question for you and for me. And not hardly first so we can answer a Richard, who is a theoretical person, by the way, not hardly first so we can answer a Richard if he asks, what does it actually mean? But so that we can answer God when he asks us what we have done with the question that he put before us in James 4, 11 through 12. So let's read these two verses together. James writes, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, in sermon preparation courses, they'll teach us that every sermon must do two things clearly. Must answer two questions. What is the author talking about? And then secondly, what is the author saying about what he's talking about? Two different questions, easy to confuse. And in study, the preacher has to answer these questions lest he be confusing. And he must answer them in his own mind in the right order, lest he be clear, but inaccurate. What is the author saying? And then what is the author saying about what he's saying? What is the... What is the author writing about and what is he saying about what he's writing about? Excuse me. Well, let's get after that first question right away. What is James writing about? James is talking about defamation. Defamation. Slander is another word for it. It becomes clear as we look at the beginning and the end of our passage. At the end of our passage, the end of verse 12, the familiar question, who are you to judge your neighbor? But in, in parallel, to start our passage, James states the same thing, similar, similar set statement, but more directly. 
Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Speaking evil against a person, or as we'll also call it, defamation or slander, comes in different forms. It can involve false witness, but it can also involve telling the truth about someone for the wrong reasons, to the wrong people, at the wrong time, and in the wrong place. It can be to someone's face, it can be behind their back. But all slander has in common a purpose to use words in order to harm a person instead of help a person. And this is why James calls it speaking evil against one another. And while defamation is an outward act done with words, it exposes the roots of an inner moral problem of judgmentalism, which he also deals with. This is what the passage is about. It's about defamation, slander, speaking against one another, which exposes the roots of a judgmental spirit. James will say some things about this sin that at first may seem a bit too strong, a bit too far. That is, until we've listened to his brother, Jesus' words about the same subject. Here's Jesus, Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and last, but not least, slander. It makes the list. Dare I say that we have underestimated, that I, that you underestimate the problem of slander. And we're not alone. James's readers underestimated the problem too, but James has not underestimated the problem. And so we have these verses. And the Holy Spirit who writes through James has not underestimated the problem. You see, slander is a strand in the DNA of all quarreling. There's no breaking up a quarrel unless this strand is broken. James has addressed his readers who are in the midst of fighting and quarreling, he says. He's spoken about the danger of the tongue, which lights fire to their lives. He's spoken of, to them about humility and to humble themselves before the Lord. And now James turns his attention to, with perceptive force to this matter of slander. And in doing so, he makes a very interesting appeal to us. He makes an argument and answers the implied question, why not? Why not slander? Why not judge one another? And as he does, James does not argue here that slander is counterproductive. It is counterproductive. But that kind of an argument wouldn't have much traction for an obvious reason. Telling a slanderer that it isn't good for their relationship with the person is not compelling because that's exactly what they don't care about and what we don't care about in the midst of our defamation. It's like telling a person in rage, hey, put down the knife, you could hurt someone with that. Yeah, that's why I have the knife in my hand. It's not persuasive. It doesn't fix the heart. They've already made that calculation. And so we make that calculation. We know we may be sinning. And yet God's word, the raw command, doesn't have a hold on us. So, so, so James will make a, an argument. An argument that be encouraged if you have a struggle with slander, if you find yourself in overt ways or in very subtle ways, cutting people down in condescending comments 
or words to them or behind their back. If you find yourself doing this and liking it but hating it, struggling with the sin of slander, be encouraged. God has not only a command for you, but reasons that are compelling. No, James does not argue that slander is counterproductive. He argues that it is incalculably presumptuous. It is presumptuous. We have all kinds of reasons for wanting to speak against one another. But James doesn't get into the middle of those. Instead, he makes us deal with God. He doesn't deal with our issues. He makes us deal with God. He makes us see how evil evil speech really is. And he gives us four reasons not to speak against one another. Four reasons not to judge one another. In the first place, it's against a brother. It's against a brother. Right there at the beginning. Do not speak evil against one another, he writes. Brothers. Do not speak evil against one another. Brothers. Speaking evil against a brother is speaking evil against a brother or, of course, a sister. I can't help but hear the voice of my mom or dad growing up. You're brothers. You're brothers. What are you doing? And, of course, they weren't imparting information. We wouldn't have argued with it. We knew this. And yet it was as if we didn't want it to be true. We came from the same womb, we slept in the same room, we ate at the same table, and we went by the same name. We were brothers and we belong to one another. So why then do brothers speak evil against brothers? Well, obviously it's because the other one was evil. First, right? He's evil. I'm speaking evil against my evil brother. Slander doesn't have to involve making things up to bear false witness. As one writer put it, you don't have to lie to defame. Watch anyone long enough and you'll have plenty of material with which to defame a person, especially a little brother who's two years younger. And so we repay evil done to us with evil done to them. And for this reason, it may not even feel evil to us. We may feel justified. But repaying evil for evil is still evil, is it not? And one of the main vehicles for repaying evil with evil is slander. So sometimes we're provoked to evil speech. But other times we really do just make stuff up. We just make stuff up. And we might not even recognize in our hearts that that's exactly what we're doing. We believe the things that we make up. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'll have you flipping around in your Bibles a little bit in the sermon, by the way. 1 Samuel 17. If you're with us during our series through 1 and 2 Samuel over the last few years, you won't be able to forget the story of David and Goliath. If you weren't with us through our series through 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll remember the story of David and Goliath still. But you may have forgotten how that scene that scene, that match-off, was started. The Philistines were gathered for battle on one side of a valley. The Israelites were gathered on another side. And a man whose name was Jesse had eight sons for one pack of brothers. Seven of them were out at battle. David the youngest, 
and the smallest was at home, tending to sheep and being sent on errands by his father. And one day, in verse 17, Jesse said this to David, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of the thousands. See if your brothers are well. Well, David found Israel's army in no such fighting in battle, but in a frightened huddle. And what were they afraid of? A proud, yapping little giant named Goliath. And I say little giant because that's what David saw, because David knew how big the Lord of hosts was. And Goliath was no match for him, even if he stood taller than every other man on the field. Well, David spoke up about this racket, but before David was opposed by Goliath personally, he was opposed by his own brothers. Look in verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. What are you doing here? I know what you're doing here. I know the evil of your heart. You're here to watch the battle. Of course, they weren't battling. They were hiding. How much of that did Eliab really know? Well, he knew none of it. How much of that was Eliab sure of, dead sure of? Well, all of it. And how much of it was actually true? Well, none of it was true. And right there, in the setting of the story of David and Goliath, we have a vivid picture of overt slander on the basis of made-up assumptions. Our slander is often not to someone's face and in front of others. Often it is to one person quietly, subtly. It comes in all different forms. But Eliab is not much different than us. Making up facts because we want to believe certain things about people. And so convinced Eliab slandered his brother to his face and before others. And even if he was corrected, even if he was corrected about the cheese and the, the whatever David was carrying, he would have liked his version of things better. And this is the heart of slander, a heart that wants to believe evil about someone else because it wants to speak evil about someone else. It loves the idea that somebody else is evil. Eliab lifted himself above his brother. But in this kind of thing, if this kind of thing is bad for brothers of blood, how much more for those who are brothers and sisters in Christ? For what is a brother or a sister in Christ but a brother or sister in mercy? This is what we share after all, not biology, but mercy. We've been made brothers and sisters by an act of eternally premeditated and eternally costly adoption. An act of mercy. Mercy, which means our very relationship to one another as brothers and sisters, is founded on the fact that we have both gotten off huge from God. Huge. 
And so even as James addresses his command, he reminds them of who they are. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. You're brothers. That's the first reason not to defame or to slander one another. It's against a brother. So remember who you are. But there's a second and closely related reason. And it's this. It's also against the law. It's against the law. Second half of verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. When I first read that, I had to read it again and then again. It wasn't exactly immediately clear to me what on earth James was saying or why that would be persuasive in a moment of temptation to slander. But I promise you, we'll understand it and it will be persuasive. It's an earful. But heard right, it is every bit as much a heart full. So let's hear, hear it right. We know James is still talking about defamation. That's what he's talking about. But what is James saying about what he's talking about here? Let's start with the word law. Is he talking about civil law? Is he talking about Old Testament law? Take a look at James 2.8. Just two chapters earlier. James 2.8. Where James writes this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. That's almost certainly the law he's talking about. He'll call it later a law of liberty that brings blessing. It's almost certainly what he's talking about, especially since he ends his thought in verse 12 12 with a question about judging your neighbor, which is a tip to Jesus' command concerning loving our neighbor, which goes back to the Old Testament as well. Now, how might you suppose that this royal law and love relates to the problem of defamation? Well, here's how, if I could state it as plainly as possible. Speaking evil against a brother is not loving a brother. So that's how it relates. We're not under the old covenant, and yet the old covenant expressed in many specific ways the application of love for neighbor. So turn with me to the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. I want you to see this. In Leviticus chapter 19, I'll read verses 16 to 18 to show how this command against slander is related to the appropriate responsibility to address one another in sin, which is related to the command to love one another. Leviticus 19, 16 and following. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, a good thing, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do you have an issue with somebody? Go to your brother or sister. Reason with them. That's very good. That's a very different thing than hating them. 
If you don't reason with them, you're very liable to end up hating them as you'll nurse the issue and bear a grudge and that will lead to slander. And that's not good. James says that when we speak evil against a brother, we actually speak evil against the law. And so we're back in the book of James. By that, he means we call the law evil. By doing the opposite of the law, we are saying that the law is wrong and that we are right. Are you following this? We are saying that the real and true law goes a little more something like this. Do not love your neighbor as yourself. Instead, slander your neighbor. Or maybe something like this. Love your neighbor as yourself, except for the neighbors that you do not like. In those cases, you can go ahead and throw those neighbors under the bus. Because when we know the word of God, the law of God, and then we do opposite the law of God, we're making ourselves a law unto ourselves. And so we set ourselves up as law givers, a most presumptuous thing to do. And it's exactly what we do when we slander a brother. We say that the law is evil. It's not good. We have a better one. But even more presumptuous than that, in doing this, we actually set ourselves up as judges over others. This takes things a level deeper into the heart still, for the spirit of judgmentalism is exactly how the sausage of slander is made in the heart. It's a judge's job to evaluate how well a person has kept the law and to administer conviction and punishment. That job belongs to the judge. And in slandering somebody, we effectively take our seat at the bench where the judge belongs. But would you know what seat our name is actually on in the courtroom? It's on the dock. That's why James says in verse 11, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Which is a problem because you're supposed to be a doer of the law. That's where you belong. God makes the law. You do it. He judges. Don't switch seats. And when we lift ourselves above our brother by speaking against him, we lift ourselves above the law and speak against it. And this is what James means when he argues so insightfully that the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But hear this. The presumption gets even worse. It goes deeper still. When we speak against our brother, we speak against the law. And when we speak against the law, we speak against the one who gave it. We speak against God. And that makes for a pretty compelling third reason not to slander. So track with me. If slandering is an addiction even of yours, it is for all of us a sin. And these are compelling reasons. And the third one is maybe the most compelling. It's against God. The first part of verse 12, James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. James's pastoral approach to a church fight is to remind them that God is not only lawgiver and judge, but he is the one who can save and destroy. 
that God is the only lawgiver and judge does not mean that Christians pay no regard to civil law. That would be a misreading of this passage for sure. Civil law is a gift and a stewardship that we share. But consider the difference between the two. Civil law is a thing that changes depending on where you're at and when you live, and its authority is limited. It has boundaries, local, regional, national boundaries, jurisdictions. But there is a higher law which God has embedded into his creation and onto the consciences of mankind, a law to which all humankind at all times will give an account, a law whose jurisdiction has no boundary. It reaches every place and down into every part of every person, even though we suppress it. It is the law to which even civil law is always working to conform, whether we fully recognize that or not. Government doesn't regulate all human behavior, but it does regulate behavior. And any law whose aim it is to protect a human being in any fashion assumes an obvious premise that is the ground for God's law, that humans really are something special. And it's in our conflicting answers to the question of what human beings are that we get all tangled up together. And the fracturing of our own society in its legal dimensions is owing to deep disagreements about the most basic notions of human nature. We know it, but indeed we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. We do not like the invisible, immutable, knowable law that God has built into human nature. And yet while many don't want to admit it, all lawmaking when it comes to regulation of any behavior is appealing to certain oughts in the universe, certain givens. We believe that those givens are given by a first and highest lawgiver who is also the first and highest judge. And when we speak against the law, which is revealed specifically in his word, we are speaking against him personally. Thus, it is presumption of the highest order for us to play the lawmaker and to set ourselves up as judge, for that is his job. It's taken and it's not ours. And more than that, not only has the job not been offered to us, but it is never, ever, and will never, ever be posted. It won't be vacated by the one who has his seat. And so how silly of us then, imagine this, to show up for a day's work in the Christian life to put on the judge's robe as if it would even fit us. We cannot even be seen under it. How silly. And yet we put it on with confidence and pride that it was made for us and that we belong inside it. And then we sit on a seat made for God who made it for himself, the judge's bench. Not only do the garments not fit though, and not only are we so small on such a large seat, but we are completely, completely incompetent for the work. The judge of human hearts must know human hearts. And we can't know the human heart. We can have indications but not a judge's knowledge. We think we know a person is evil and how evil they are and in what ways they're evil. But like David's brothers, we do not know. The judge of human hearts must also be perfectly just, innocent of guilt himself, if he's to judge justly. But we think we're innocent and we are not innocent and our motives are not pure. We have a deep conflict of interest in every case that comes before us. We want this person cleared and we want that person 
guilty. And so we fill in all kinds of blanks in a person's story and we rush to a verdict and we issue unduly harsh punishments. And brothers and sisters, this should not be so. We need to get off the bench. That's what James is saying. As one author put it, God is the only one who is able to detect absolutely accurately, to convict with absolute authority, and to punish with absolute fairness. Do we not trust him to do so in his time? Consider this. This doesn't just mean that we aren't to set ourselves up as lawgiver and judge. It means that there is actually a law and there is a judge to whom we must ourselves give an account. And the only thing worse than breaking the law is presuming to write it and to be found judging others in the place of the true judge. So it is in this humbling realization of who we really are that we can get to the hard work of living justly before God ourselves. It's when we realize the accuracy of God's detection of our sins and motives. It's when we realize the absolute authority with which he convicts sin. And it's when we realize the perfect fairness with which he issues his punishments. It's then that we will wake up and realize that slander back to the subject is not so much a temptation for us anymore. It starts with our vision of God, a vision which corrects our vision of ourselves and a vision of ourselves which conditions our vision of the people around us so that yes, we may see them as sinners as they are, but we will not see them as sinners from a lofty position in a condescending angle, but we'll see them side by side as sharing our same problem. Derek Prime puts it beautifully. The knowledge of our own failings makes us more and more hesitant about expressing any form of criticism of others. The man who knows himself learns an increasing silence before other people's faults. We may speak to others about their sin and James wants us to and he models it for us but we will do so in love to bring them back from wandering. We will do so in order to save their soul from death because we love and care for their soul. We'll do so as a means to loving our neighbor and not in contradiction or opposition to that law. And we'll do so in order to help them and not to harm. Now you'll notice that James adds a line about God in verse 12. God is, he says, he who is able to save and to destroy. How can that help us? He who's able to save and to destroy. He's not just throwing out words. How can that help? Well, James thought it was important. He was probably meditating on Deuteronomy 32, 39, the morning he wrote the letter, where the Lord says, see now that I, even I am he, and there's no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. 
I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And it's this vision of God, the only God, the one who saves and the one who destroys, that informed James's pastoral strategy for addressing a slandering, quarreling church. A vision without which that problem cannot be addressed. For we will not be so presumptuous when we realize that not only is God lawgiver and judge, but he is also able to execute on his judgments because he is the God who can destroy body and soul in hell, not merely hurt the body, as scripture says. And so we should properly fear him. But he is also secondly, sorry, secondly, we will not be so presumptuous when we realize that God who can destroy with perfect justice, also saves. And all of this he does through Jesus Christ. For it was Christ who said that he was the lawgiver. Matthew 5, 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. He's over the law. And it was Christ who said, he is the judge. Matthew 25, When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And yet it was Christ who also said, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be destroyed but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through the world through him might be saved. And of course he did this through a cross where he died to save us and also where he died to set an example for us. Through a cross where Christ felt no little bit of misunderstanding. You ever felt misunderstood by somebody? Tempted to speak ill of them? They're not listening. Where Christ was at least somewhat falsely accused, completely falsely accused, he understands being falsely accused, and you may have been. He knows these things that you know well. And yet there on the cross where he still possessed all authority to put put down those who did evil against him, Jesus Christ did not open his mouth. He didn't open his mouth. And so as you struggle to hold back the words that you want to say on the basis of things that you know or maybe on the basis of things that you think, be self-suspicious of the things that you think that you know. But when you're tempted to open your mouth, remember Jesus who did not open his and knew perfectly the hearts of men. Thus, because it is God's sole prerogative alone to make laws and judgments, to save and to destroy, and because he has had so much mercy on us, it must be our sole priority never, ever to forget it. It is God's sole prerogative to write laws and to judge. He alone can save and destroy, and therefore it is our sole priority never to forget it. So brothers and sisters, do not speak evil against one another. Which brings us to our fourth reason 
a concluding and familiar question, but hear it with fresh ears. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Point four, it's against reason. Oh, not in the moment. The little moment in our little lives where all we can see is what's in front of us and we aren't even looking at ourselves. This is our life, right? You can see what happens to you right in front of you and you're not even looking at yourself. With that perspective, oh, it, doesn't, it seems perfectly reasonable to throw someone under the bus. It seems perfectly reasonable to make that comment or that comment to take them down. No, it's not against reason shaped by our immediate experience where we experience everything in a limited way, but we also experience it and interpret our experience as sinners. No, it's reasonable in light of cosmically and eternally shaped reason. Who are you to judge? Well, I'm no one to judge, of course. God is the judge and the lawgiver. I'm a doer of the word. Oh, of course, I've been sinned against. There are many things that I don't know, even though I'm tempted to assume. It's not my place to judge my neighbor. Well, of course, I should help my neighbor in love when they're in sin because it's dangerous for the soul and I care because of all that God has done for me. He has not let me to wander. And that's why we need to trust the Bible on this. It's, not, it's why we need to trust James's words and hear them rightly when he asks, who are you to judge your neighbor? It's a question to make sure is not misunderstood when it is misquoted. But more importantly, it's a question to be understood for a lot is at stake in our hearing. It's a challenge to understand our true position in this universe, so to understand our true position in relationship to one another. God alone makes laws and judges on their basis, and he's good at it, and we can trust him to do it. If in the moment we think that this isn't a really good plan, we remember that in the end, God will bring perfect justice. In the end, many who think they have gotten off huge, huge in this life, and many who have gotten off huge in this life will meet a great surprise. And alternatively, many who think that they have been unjustly punished in this life will receive a huge surprise as well. For the God who is judge also justifies the ungodly through Jesus Christ. And for all of these reasons, for all of these deep reasons, to address the issue of slander. Brothers and sisters, do not speak evil against one another. Let's pray. Father, we confess the sin of slander. We confess that we don't even say all the things that we might want to say about some of the people that are the closest to us. Some of the greatest gifts to us in friends, in family, in coworkers, we think the most evil thoughts of, the most ungrateful thoughts of, we assume the worst motives of, and we confess that we are very dangerous people. Help us not to say many of the things that we think. Help us even better not to think some of the things that we think. And help us to get there by remembering who you are as lawgiver and judge that you have commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves and that is our duty. And you are the one who judges hearts and you do that perfectly. 
May we trust you in this. Help our church never to become a church that quarrels. Help our church first into that end, never to become a church where slander is accepted. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.